he would take us to amazing zine shops, but like these places where we could buy indie comics. That's how I found Alison Bechtel. That's how I found Terry Moore. And I remember thinking, having only been exposed to the nerdier side of comics, being like, oh, there's like a punk rock aspect to this. Hi, I'm graphic novelist Jarrett J. Krasowska, and welcome to Origin Stories. In this podcast, I go on a deep dive into the upbringings and artistic developments of some of the very brightest and most talented graphic novelists working today. In this episode, we're going to get to know how Lucy Nicely became Lucy Nicely. Lucy Nicely blasted onto the scene with her graphic memoir, Relish, and she's continued to give us insights into her life through graphic memoir as she's gone on to get married and become a mother. She also posts such insightful and fun and engaging cartoons online. She's won more awards than I could possibly keep track of, and she's revered in the comics community. She is like the nicest person ever. So let's get to know Lucy Nicely's origin story. Origin Stories with JJK. Jarrett J. Krasowski. Jarrett Krasowski. Graphic Memoir. Hey Kiddo. Before we get into my conversation with Lucy Nicely, Origin Stories is sponsored in part by High Five Books, a beautiful and incredible indie bookshop here in Florence, Massachusetts. Check out studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories for links to buy Lucy's books from this fabulous indie. And while you're over at the High Five website, check out their curated list of book recommendations. Truly High Five worthy. Okay, on to my chat with Lucy Nicely. How are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm hanging in there. We are both <laughs> parents of kindergartners. Yep. Uh, I remember so clearly being at Book Expo with you and you were, I, I want to say you were 12 months pregnant at the time. Uh, 12 or 13 months. Yep, that sounds yeah. about right. And, and while we were on stage and someone stole your wallet, right? Oh, that's right. Someone pickpocketed me. And yeah. So that's the first time we met in person. And <laughs> I've been following you on Instagram for years. And I can also remember where I was when I first saw Relish because that book, it just hit me. I said, this is a beautiful piece of work. It was on display at a bookstore and I picked it up right away. And we have both been managing uh, life with a young person during a pandemic. Uh, for the days when I would just make books about eating food. That's what a simple time. That must be really interesting. I feel like through your work, we have watched you grow up, right? What year was Relish published? Relish came out in 2013, I believe. The book that you were promoting when I met you was, was something new, Tales from a Makeshift Bride. Oh, and, that's right. And, and then shortly after that, Kid Gloves, The Careful Chaos of making our baby. So we know each other, but I, I feel like even though we're just about the same age, I feel like I've watched you grow up, but I don't know anything about your childhood. So what was life like for you when you were very young? What, what was the house like? What was your family like? I was born in New York City in 1985. So that was a, a period of transition for the city, I would say. It was leaving its quirky fine arts Andy Warhol era of bohemianness and transitioning into the like Wall Street finance playground of wildly exorbitant spending and ridiculous overabundance and, and tourism that it is today. So I caught the last of this kind of grittier New York where there were still artists there that could afford to live there. Uh, so a lot of my mom's friends worked in the food industry and they were artists. So I had a lot of 
people surrounding me that were artists, musicians, actors, dancers, sculptors, that kind of thing. And it, I remember it being really cool, but not appreciating how cool it was because I was just like, yeah, this is my mom's friends, whatever. And my parents were big entertainers. They lived in this old loft building that was a converted paper factory. So it was just like this big space with no walls or doors. Like my bedroom did not have a wall or a door and they had dinner parties constantly because my mom really loved to cook and she was a professional chef at, for most of her life. So she would entertain. She was a natural entertainer. She still is. Even during COVID, I have to call her and say, please stop throwing parties, please. But she, so she and my dad would have these dinner parties and I would, I would either fall asleep on the, the pile of coats on my parents' bed, listening to glasses clinking and people laughing, or I would hide out under the table so that no one realized I was still awake and listen to people talk and chat. And so I had this cool kind of bohemian aspect to my childhood, but at the same time, my dad was a businessman. He worked in an ad agency in the 80s through the 90s. And so he was part of that, it's not Mad Men era, but it's like a whole different ad guy era where I remember going to his office and it was the first time I saw a computer and he had a, a screensaver. He had the flying toasters <laughs> screensaver. I was fascinated with the flying toaster screensaver and people would smoke cigars and drink beer in the office. He worked for an ad agency that advertised for tobacco and beer and stuff like that. So it was like part of the job. We're just like, you know, everybody's got a mini fridge in their office. You crack one open and drink it. And so when I would go with my dad, it was this really different world where I, I remember feeling really out of place, being like, I don't want this kind of adulthood. And they had the dot matrix printers. So he would give me paper from the dot matrix printer to draw on. And that was my first canvases were all these dot matrix, like the, the paper that's all connected to itself. But he also worked with a lot of ad creative people and they would give him storyboard boards for him to take home to me. So I would also make comics on these advertising storyboards that had like Miller Lite written across the top, but I was like making little goofy comics about the bear. And so I had made these kind of weird worlds, these very disparate worlds mesh a little bit. I would go with my mom to friends places where they had art studios and I would get to sit there and watch this one uh, friend of my mom's made these giant paper mache sculptures and things. So I learned how to do that. She had another friend who was a f like a floral artist. She's still a floral artist, I should say. But at the time, I just, I remember like going out into the back alley with her and spray painting flowers with gold spray paint. And she had every kind of glitter. It was like a six-year-old dream. Her studio was just like glitter, rhinestones, gold flowers. It's amazing. And I just remember going to these places and being like, okay, this is more like the adulthood that I <laughs> am comfortable with, more so than this other thing that my dad's got going on. All good for him, not for me. So I, I imagine then, and I, I don't want to mean to jump to conclusions, but I want to ask then, were your parents super supportive when you said, mom and dad, I, I want to be a cartoonist? I didn't come to the conclusion about cartooning for a pretty long time. I definitely knew I wanted to be an artist of some kind or a writer. And my mom was always very supportive, though she was realistic because as a creative person who has worked in the food industry and knows a lot of artists, she was aware of how difficult it would be to make a living and to you know, have 
things that I might want in my life later on. So she was always very straightforward with me that if you want to be an artist, you have to uh, work for it. You have to really work for it and you have to sacrifice for it. You may have to live in a garret, but if that's who you are and I think it is, that's what you're going to be happiest doing. And my dad was much more like, you could be an artist in your free time. Like, why don't we have a safer thing going on? So he was much more conservative about this stuff. He didn't like the idea of me living in a garret, unlike my mom, who was like, a garret would be perfect for her. But wouldn't um, your dad have worked with artists in his job? I think he worked with ad artists, which were a different breed. So he was much more like, that's not really the life I want for her. And I think he didn't see the connection between who I was and like a commercial artist. And I was lucky enough to be exposed to all kinds of artists. So I think it was nice actually for me to get to see certain kinds of commercial artists that were working in the ad industry and also people that were living in garrets. So it was a, a nice mixture for me to see real artists. You know, I talked to my partner grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and he, he says that he didn't encounter an artist in the wild, like a real life working professional artist until adulthood. And that's so bizarre to me. But I knew so many. Like all my babysitters were in punk rock bands. All the parents of the my friends were all kind of these interesting bohemian people. So we just had really different upbringings. And I, I don't think I realized until much later in life that wasn't necessarily the norm in America. No, no, no. Or anywhere, really. It sounds so magical and fascinating because, yeah, I don't... The only artists I ever knew were art teachers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Which as you mostly perceive your teachers as not be quite human. It's not really the same. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so, so you were drawing on these storyboards that your dad brought home from work. And what were you reading? What kind of stuff were you consuming? My dad had a degree in literature from Harvard University. He's very proud of that fact. And he went on to to do like a double mastery or double a PhD in business and literature. So at the time that he was getting into the ad industry, he was also studying literature. So he's a big reader, one might say. And he's very intellectual and he's very respectful of the kind of institutions of higher learning and literary nonsense. Whereas my mom was like a, a hippie with ADD. <laughs> she just fell into what she was passionate about and then crashed headlong into the next thing she was passionate about. So I was given the opportunity to read everything because my dad really wanted to encourage me to read. My mom was also very supportive of anything I wanted to read. So while I grew up on a lot of like classic literary books, I, I remember in particular my dad read Edward Lear poetry to me as a kid and it terrifying me because the illustrations in the book that we read together were so frightening and they really affected me and my dad didn't get it or thought it was funny that I was terrified by these illustrations and I think that's a perfect example of the way that my dad really supports me and tries to share in my interests but he doesn't he's not the same way affected by visual stimuli the way that I am and so I remember reading these poetry books with my dad and sort of him pushing me to memorize this poetry and write. And my mom was much more supportive of me making artwork. And she's an artist herself and she painted a lot at home and I would join in or I would watch her. So when it came time for me to seek out books for myself, I instantly gravitated 
towards comics. I really loved that it combined these kind of two aspects of my parenting, the, the parenting that was going into my moldable little brain, the sort of visual, passionate, fun aspect of comics combined with the storytelling, the literary aspect, the pacing and the communication aspects that my dad was pushing on me. And for me, comics was like the perfect synthesis of that. And I remember that my parents were like, all, all right, that's cool. Like Calvin and Hobbes is really great. It's a great book. No one can hate Calvin and Hobbes. But I do remember that when I started to branch out into things like Archie comics, which I became really obsessed with, my mom was really hesitant because she thought they were very outdated. She thought they were um, sexist. The whole Betty and Veronica fighting over Archie thing. And my dad thought that they weren't intellectual enough. They weren't literary enough. So I met with this resistance pretty instantaneously with comics, but by then it was too late. My parents at the time were splitting up. So I was probably around seven at the time and my parents were splitting up. They had married as a couple of like young hippies and then my dad became a business guy <laughs> and my mom became an even bigger hippie. And so they just deviated in their paths. I think that was when I really started to get into comics because I saw it as this way of like remarrying these two parts of my parents. And I really loved that I could be engaging with art and with literature at the same time in my mind. And I think I've carried that mindset about comics throughout my life. It's why I'm always confused when certain people in authority want to ban comics or discourage the reading of comics in young people. Cause I'm like, but this is art and books. Like why wouldn't you ever, that's all that we want in our young people is to have interest in art and in reading. Why would you take that away from them? No, it's so true. It's art and it's literature. I, I am just so like the idea of a father big fancy degree in literature. <laughs> I'm having no less. And then when it, when his kid is bringing in Archie and Jughead, I love that it wasn't the comics, but like he he wanted you to read. Did he give you Art Spiegelman or anything? Like Eventually, I think he was the one that gave me Art Spiegelman. He, but he gave in to the comics thing. As long as I was reading, he was okay with it. And the thing is that what my dad and I have always bonded over is, is like, going to restaurants together. So when I was a kid and I would go to visit him, we'd go out to eat and he'd bring a book and I'd bring a comic and we'd sit there and we'd have this really nice meal while we both read. And it was great. It was so nice. And so my dad recognized that I was reading, at least. He would have preferred that I be reading like Proust or something. <laughs> I'm sure as a seven-year-old, that's what he envisioned. But the fact that I was reading it all, I think was pleasing him and he knew that I was reading you know non-comic books in school so he knew I wasn't completely falling down the tunnel of madness but he also grew up in the you know 50s 60s time period which was such a literally the golden age of comics so I think he knew comics from a young age and recognized their worth to a certain extent but it wasn't until I was much older and I was very lucky to have people like Art Spiegelman and Alison Bechtel breaking into the literary institution. And all of a sudden everyone was like, oh, these books can win awards. These books can be meaningful. These books can be a literary achievement that my dad was like, graphic novels. Okay, okay. And, and so what was it like then for you when you were leaving 
the house. High school ends. Did you go to college? Did you study art in college? I barely made it through high school. You wouldn't know to look at me now. I'm like this nerd mom. You wouldn't have known to look at me that I was like this nerd kid. But I, I had a really tough time in high school. And what happened was this. I am an artist and I have dyscalculia, which is an inability to process mathematics and numbers. And my teachers thought there was something really wrong with me because I couldn't not draw in class. And I had certain teachers that were just doggedly determined to pry it out of me, to just get me to stop drawing in class. My fifth grade teacher in particular was really mean about it. She hated that I drew in class and she would have these classes where we were like reading along in social studies, which I think about now and I'm like, that was the class that we just read in the book and take turns like reading paragraphs. And she would wait until the moment my attention had wandered from the textbook over to my notes where I would start to draw. And then she would say, Lucy, take over the next one. And she'd know that I was lost because she would wait for the minute that I would get, that I would stop paying attention to the, the text. And I was still listening, but she would wait for that minute. She'd say, Lucy, take over. And I'd say, I'm sorry, I don't know where we are. And every time it happened, she would take me out the hallway and she would yell at me about drawing a class. And she, like, she would get so mad and I could not physically stop doing it. And I remember certain days where she was taking me out there like five or six times throughout the day, like taking me to the hallway, taking me to the hallway. And the whole class could hear her yell at me and me crying. And I'd go back and I'd be like, I swear, I'm not going to draw this time. And then my hand would just do it. I couldn't stop doing it. And I can't believe that was how she was dealing with this issue, that she was just like yelling at me repeatedly and interrupting class to do it. But she hated it. So sixth grade, I had this wonderful teacher who was really supportive and taught differently and let me draw and assigned a lot of projects that allowed me to draw. And I became like a total teacher's pet. She and I had a book club together. Like it was great. And she's amazing. So she was awesome, but they still thought there was something really wrong with me. So everybody after the school that I was in went on to a preppy boarding school. So I was like, all right, I guess that's what I have to do. That's what all of these kids did. It's upstate New York. They all went to these like New England, like Hotchkiss and Andover and all these really fancy schools. And I was like, whatever. I'm like, where do I go, ma? And the teachers of my elementary school were like, this kid, there's like, she had clearly is severely learning to say bold. And she needs to go to a school that specializes in that. I wound up at this boarding school in New Hampshire for uh, that specializes in kids with learning disabilities. Now, I didn't really have a diagnosed learning disability. I wasn't medicated. I could read just fine. I was managing in math okay despite my uh, inability to fathom numbers still. But my mom thought that if she sent me to the school where they specialize in kids that learn differently, they'd be able to help me. They'd be able to help me learn and they'd be able to understand that I learned differently. And so she was like, all right, yeah, let's go, let's give this a try. But the problem was this was the 90s and they didn't know how, I'm not sure they still they do yet know how to really manage uh, learning disabled kids. And so these kids were all very medicated and needed a lot of intervention. And if, like me, you were a kid that was perfectly capable, could read, could manage, was like emotionally stable, they were like, great, you're just, you stay there. We have major fires to put out over here. 
And so I had all this free time. I learned how to play the guitar because like I just, uh, half of the classes were like special help, special tutoring and stuff. And they were like, you don't need this. You're good. Just hang out. And so I would just hang out. Half the year I just hung out and they would take field trips into Boston. They were up in New Hampshire. They'd take field trips into Boston like four hours away. And I went on one of these field trips once and they were like, all right, like wander around Harvard Square and then come back here at a certain time. I did this and some friends of mine and I were like wandering around Harvard Square. We came back and the, the van was gone. I was 14 at the time. So the van was gone because other kids that lived in Boston caught a ride with the van back to school and they did a head count. They were like, all right, we came with 18 kids. We're leaving with 18 kids. Let's go. They ended up leaving like eight or nine kids this is in like Boston. It's like the setup to Home Alone. That's <laughs> for nerdy goth kids. So we're in Harvard Square. It's eight o'clock at night. Our school has left us there. This is before cell phones. So we're like, huh, I guess we have to find a payphone and oh. see whose parents are like nobody's parents lived in Boston. Oh, okay, what are we gonna do? So we call around to a bunch of parents. There's one parent that's like in New York who can drive there, pay, cram us all into their car and drive up to school, but it's gonna take four hours. And at this oh. point it's nine or ten o'clock at night and we're just in the city. So we're like, what can we do in that time? Oh, I know. Let's go to the midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show in oh. Harvard Square. So that's what we did. We went to the Rainbow Show of Rocky Horror. We slept in the park until this dad, this poor dad in a minivan could come get us and bring us back to school. So anyway, this story kind of, despite being like fun, great in the end, it was the last straw for my mom where she was like, I'm not gonna send my child to the school where they like uh, leave her by accident in Boston and she's just left to her own devices all the time. So she pulled me out of that school. She put me in the local public school where I had come from this school full of misfit, weirdo, over-medicated, very emotionally like intense kids into this much more like the, the football team kind of thing. And I, would, I did not fit in very well. I had also come from a school that specialized in learning disabled kids. So they put me in special needs classes with kids who were very in need of intervention. So I was in classes with kids that could read, could, that had this severe emotional problems. And this was a public school. They didn't have a lot of funding for it. I remember one of my classes was in one of those, they looked like dumpsters, <laughs> like the, the annex. It was in the yeah. annex modular classroom. And looks like, does look like a dumpster. I never thought of that. It looks like a dumpster. And I was like, I'm yeah, going to school in a dumpster. Oh man. And I would cut class to go down the road. There was a cafe where my guitar teacher would play the guitar for tips. And I would just go down the road and hang out with him basically and play the guitar. I was a weird kid. It was during the, the second Bush election and I was like, Ralph Nader's great. I was 15 and I just didn't fit in. And there were kids that were really violent. There were kids that were not very excited to share their hallway with this like weird kind of gothy weirdo. And I got into a, a, a lot of trouble with that sort of stuff, getting threatened, getting beaten up. So my mom yanked me out of that one and put me into the preppiest school she could find locally. And it was just the worst. I would have stayed and gotten threatened and beaten up at the public school much more than being in this one, which 
required me to wear a uniform and do sports and sleep at the school because they were boarding school, even though they were near my house. And I was joining halfway through the year, so I didn't have a room assignment. And they were like, don't just make friends and you can sleep on their floor. What? <laughs> Three nights a week. What? And I was like, I'm not gonna make it do that. And also at this time, like my mom had this suicidally depressed boyfriend. She had a lot on her plate. I had meanwhile started doing community theater at the local community theater and got a job working there as an administrative intern. And I loved it and I saved up enough to buy a junky car and I was driving myself to work after school and driving myself to school, which is 45 minutes away. And oh, I wasn't allowed to have the car at school. No, you can't have a car at school because you'll leave because this is a cult. And uh, so I would drive my car to school and park down the road and like hide it behind a bush and then walk the rest of the way to school. And then they were like, no, you have to sleep here. You have to do sports. You have to do yada. And I'd be like, oh, I have a job. I have a life outside of the school. This is like why I want to live at home and not go to boarding school. And they were like, well, if you don't do these things, you can't go here. So I, I would just not do these things. I didn't want to sleep there on someone's floor. I didn't want to play squash. Like I, I had a job that meant a lot to me. And I wanted to help my mom like take care of this guy that was sleeping on our couch. And so it was a mess. And I ended up on probation there. And then I was at a party with some friends of mine from the public school one weekend and a boarding student from the school that I went to was at the party with some other day student and bought pot at this party, brought it back to the campus of the preppiest school in the world, was immediately caught with it. And when they caught him said, if you can give us the names of anybody else at this party, we'll let you off the hook. Stop. And he gave mine. I was already on probation. It was his word against mine. And they brought me in and they were basically like, we know your deal. We know you're a pothead, which I was like watching The Matrix every night. I was not. <laughs> what a snake, that. this kid. Oh, I know. He was See? saving his ass. The school was the one that I really blamed. Because what the hell are you doing yeah. asking a 15 year old to narc, narc everyone else out? Yeah. Anyone else yeah. that was at this party. And yeah. he turns me in and I'm like, so they're like, we know you were at this party. And I break down and I'm like, yes, I was at the party. And they're like, you have two choices. We can call the cops and they'll come here and arrest you, or you can withdraw from the school and finish out the year from home and then come back and take your final exams after all the other students that you could negatively influence had left and get credit for the year. And I was like, oh, I'll do that, I'll do that. And they were like, great, we can make an example of this person as our zero tolerance policy martyr. And my poor mother, who's dealing with this like suicidal guy living in her house, doesn't know what to make of this, doesn't know what's going on. Her kid who's like got a job at the local theater and likes to sing show tunes is being kicked out of school. And she's just like what my dad was so angry and so angry by mom thought that she was the responsible party for all of this. Just, wow. What are you telling her? You're turning into her into a druggie. It was wild. So I leave that school, take my exams, get credit for the year. And my mom's, we gotta get you into a school where this isn't, <laughs> this stuff cannot happen anymore. So she finds the hippiest school she can locate that my original elementary school was like, oh no, you don't want to send your child there. They'll turn her into a drug game. 
And she's, she's already clearly a druggie. So she's said, marked as such. <laughs> she's marked as such. And this school probably won't mind. So she sends me to the school that, that had been started by Vassar College for Vassar College faculty to send their kids to. So it's this total hippie school in Poughkeepsie, New York. And it's just basically an art school. And she sends me to this place and it saved my bacon completely. I walk in and it's, oh, my people, like theater nerds, art nerds. I lived for the next two years in the art room of the school and never left. I never had to take another gym class. I, it was amazing. I had to take math and stuff, but I, I remember the second time I was taking algebra two because I had failed the first one. I took my final exam and I'd studied so hard and I tried so hard and my teacher just looks it over and goes, honey, you're going to art school. It's okay. <laughs> I think I found that teacher because oh my I God. kept thinking as you're telling the story, I kept thinking, okay, surely the next beat of the story is going to be happy. But I kept getting worse and worse for you. If you're enjoying my chat with Lucy Nicely and want to see the conversation, which includes visuals of the books we reference and some old family photos, check out studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories. I recorded this talk via Switcher Studio. Switcher Studio is a simple and powerful iOS app that makes your live video feeds look like a professionally produced piece. Your iPad becomes like the production control room as you switch between your iPhone camera, which acts as a webcam, your remote guest, any pre-recorded video or visuals you want to bring on screen. I would like to thank Switcher Studio for sponsoring this podcast. And as a thank you to you for listening, you may use code STUDIOJJK at switcherstudio.com to receive a free month of their service hanging out and got to see this incredible art. And not only that, but be exposed to artists that were working, like modern working artists that existed in our time period, which up until then I had only been exposed to Michelangelo who lived so long ago. And you can't be an artist now because they've already painted the Sistine Chapel. And <laughs> so it was really important to me. And not only that, but he would take us to amazing like zine shops but like these places where we could buy indie comics and i remember picking up like early jeffrey lewis stuff and all this really cool like zine work that that was not published mainstream that i would was finding at age like 16 17. it was really amazing and this was also just such a weird time for new york it was right at 9-11, it was right when the city was really undergoing a lot of changes and the art world was really changing. I'm really lucky that I got to be exposed to all that stuff, exposed to these incredible cartoonists working at the time. That's how I found Alison Bechtel. That's how I found Terry Moore. Just these people that Gabrielle Bell was one of the people whose early zine work I bought. John Porcelino was one of my early zines. And I remember thinking, Having only been exposed to the nerdier side of comics, being like, oh, there's like a punk rock aspect to this. This is awesome. Did you go to art college then after all that or after all of that experience? <laughs> you're like, I'm done with the educational <laughs> experience. I went to art school. Yes. I remember my dad made me apply to all of these really good Sarah Lawrence and Cornell and stuff. And I was like, you want me to apply to these schools with this high school record. That's <laughs> this is what you want me to take to Sarah Lawrence College, this one. And you, yeah, because 
for like safety's sake so that you can have a safe career by going to a liberal arts college. And I was like, well, I want to write, but I want to be an artist and I'll never get to go to a good writing program with this kind of ridiculous transcript. So I get a double down on the art thing. I loved it. The last two years have saved my life. This is great. So I applied to a bunch of art schools, applied to some completely out of my league schools that my dad liked. He tried to make me apply to Harvard or Yale, and I was like, I draw the line. <laughs> I can't take it. And I am so lucky again at this point that an article came out by the New York Times or something about the fact that getting a, a BFA was the new hot thing to be employable in this world. And also that the School of the Art Institute of Chicago was, and I quote, the Harvard of art schools. Oh, you've lucked out. So I get into like, I know, thank God. So I get into the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and my dad is like, the Harvard of art school, as you say, might be coming around on this whole art school thing. Thank God, whoever wrote this article, I owe them such a debt of thanks because he finally chilled out about the liberal arts education and was like, all right, fine, you could go to the school. And fortunately, what was great about SASC is a couple things. One, that they had an incredible writing program that I took a lot of classes in because I think it's at least half the work with comics is the writing. The second thing is that at the time that I went, they did not have any kind of comics program. And I say this as a benefit. Like, I think that the comics program there now is amazing. I have friends that teach in it, and I think they're doing incredible things. But when I was there, there was no comics thing. It was a fine art school. It really broadened my sort of artistic understanding. It made me aware of different methodologies that I bring to my comics work now. And at the time, I wasn't fully cognizant that I wanted to be a comic artist. It wasn't until I started making comics for the newspaper there, the school newspaper called F News Magazine, that I was like, oh, this combines art and writing in such a perfect way. I've always loved reading it. And here I am at a school that does not have a program for it. Whoops. <laughs> so it was a challenge to seek out teachers that would let me make comics, to seek out a painting teacher that got it, to seek out a drawing teacher that got it, a writing teacher that got it, and would let me make comics for my assignments. And I think that was really great because it was a challenge to make comics in a way that isn't make it this way, make it the cattle arts way, make it the CCS way, make it this way. I was making comics the fine arts and writing way. Essentially, I was like trying to make comics in a class that was like, we're going to talk about like Titian's paintings. And so I'd be like, all right, how can I make this assignment comics? And I think it really helped me. The other thing that was the biggest piece of the puzzle for me at SAIC was when I was a freshman there, Hope Larson was a senior there. So she saw my comics in oh. F News Magazine, in School Magazine. So Hope was already married and was just about to publish her first book. And she saw my comics in the newspaper and sent me an email and was like, hey, I see that you're a girl making comics. I too am that in the school that does not have a lot of comic stuff. So we should hang out and be friends. And I was like, great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Cool. Awesome. I remember the first time we hung out and met and she was like, this is my husband, Brian. And I was like, oh, nice to meet you, Brian. Whatever. Hey, anyway, Hope, you're so great. I love your work. Blah, 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 blah. I was her ex-husband, Brian Lee O'Malley. And <laughs> I'm still like, Hope's 
Hope's my favorite. She's my favorite. She's better. But at the time, I was like this total rube and didn't know who he was. And was, oh, yeah, nice to meet you, Hope's husband. But Hope really took me under her wing. And they were going to TCAF that spring, the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. And she was like, hey, do you want to come to the show? We're road tripping there. Let's make a mini comic together. I'll show you how to make like a mini comic. We'll do it together and you can road trip with us there. And I was like, oh my God, that'd be so great. That's so awesome. So we made this mini comic together called Letters from the Bottom of the Sea. I was a freshman in college when this happened and it's still such a good comic that it was referenced, not just referenced, but a picture from it was used in Scott McGuire's Making Comics book from this mini comic. Oh, how terrible your adolescence and teen years, early teen years and high school experience was like, like what you just described was a dumpster fire. And as you mentioned, one of the classics <laughs> was an actual dumpster. And now it's almost like you went to art school and that was like your Cinderella now, like you were invited to the ball, which yes. is like a road trip to TCAF. Let's be clear, TCAF at the time was intense in a parking lot. Still, but like, <laughs> if you were a freshman? I was a freshman in college. Yep. Yeah, so I what did. an amazing experience for I know, freshman. and I sat at a table with Hope Larson and Brian Lee O'Malley selling my little mini comic. I met, I think I met Vera Brasdahl. Oh, I hey. met, that's where I met Raina, I'm pretty sure. I met Jess Fink, Erica Mullen, who else? Oh my God, just these incredible people, Jen Wang, I think was there. Wow. It was wild. And all these people were also on LiveJournal, just like me. Uh, <laughs> were you posting comics to LiveJournal? I did. And I started when I was 16 and I was getting kicked out of school. That's when I opened my LiveJournal. And I think it still exists online. And I started making drawings and putting them on my LiveJournal. And so then I started making friends virtually and making friends in person. And, and I think that I was already live journal friends with some of the people that I met at TCAP. So we formed these bonds and it's still people that I'm like so incredibly honored and awed in awe of to know people that whose work just blows my mind all the time. And it's so cool. Like that's how I met Raina for the first time. And she was putting smile up on her life journal. Account. And the publishing industry was just starting to get into this headspace of, oh, this Alison Bechtel seems like good money. <laughs> like we could make some good money here to find some comic artists. So they hired a bunch of people that liked comics and gave them absolutely no money, no budget, did not know how to sell comics. So they, so they send this new editor, this fresh, young, cool editor who knows graphic novels to MochaFest to acquire some books for their imprint. And they get my work, a piece of work by Jeffrey Brown and a piece of work by Vanessa Davis. Jeffrey and Vanessa had both already published a little bit before, but I was like this total unknown. I had this zine and this woman had faith in me, thank God. So she takes it back to Simon & Schuster and they're like, okay, we'll give these kids some a, a contract. We'll throw them a bone. So she throws us these contracts and I was 22, 21 at the time. Had no idea what to make of this contract. I think I need someone who knows how to read this contract to help me whose career do I really like okay Alison Bechtel is doing amazing I love her I'm gonna find somebody who's worked with her to help me with this contract so I look up this woman who had been her publicist and was getting into agenting this woman Holly Bemis and I write her an email just being like hi I'm a baby and I don't know what I'm doing 
and I have this book contract. So most of the work that you would be hired to do is done, but I need your help. Please, could you be my agent? Like, so forever, Lucy. And she writes back and she's like, yeah, sure. Send me the contract. Great. We're, I'm your agent now. I'm still with this agent and she's oh. amazing. I really lucked out and love her. She's awesome. And I can't believe that she just was like, sure, I'll be your agent. But anyway, so I signed this contract with Simon Schuster. And then the imprint promptly doesn't give the funding to these books to sell them. They think that they can sell them in the way that they sell all their books, where they're like, oh, they get Barnes and Noble and stuff. They don't reach out to comic shops. They don't send me to conventions. They don't do anything that you would do normally to sell these books. So the books don't do well. My lovely editor is fired because of this. And they, I think they shut down the whole imprint. So I was like, that didn't go so well, my first foray into publishing. So I knew for my second book that I wanted to do a book with a publishing company that really cared about comics and knew how to sell them. So I talked to my brand new spanking agent about it and I'm like, help, who do I do? And she's, we gotta get you into first second. They were the ones at the time that in North America, they really cared about the way that their books looked and the way that they were received and they knew how to sell them. And Gina Gagliano was the publicist at the time and Callista Brill was my editor. And so I had these incredible people to help me with this book. So this is the book that made it, took off basically, after my first kind of went meow. Yeah, this relish was everywhere. Every bookstore I went to was on display. It was and, amazing. And you, you hit the nail on the head because back in the late O's when, you know, traditional trade publishers were getting into graphic novels, most of them did not know that you had to take a different approach. So like the Lunch Lady comics for the first five or six years of them being around were never in comic book shops. It was so frustrating. So I, I hear and feel that frustration of pouring your heart and soul into something and then it, it might sputter out once it gets out to the world, but Relish didn't. Relish made it. You have graphic memoir that, would you say they're adult books or young adult books? Like how, how would you categorize the age for your graphic memoir? Relish? won an award for young readership. So I think that's probably a good age range, but <clears throat> whenever I'm writing any of my work, I'm not thinking about an age range, essentially. I'm just writing the stories that I wanna tell. And fortunately it's worked out so far, particularly in my most recent work, which is technically middle grade. And I'm like, this is intense stuff. This is like stuff about mingled families and like developmental stages and like really intense emotional upheavals when your family changes and it it's not something that I would immediately be like this is for kids but that's what kids experience that's what I experienced and so obviously it can resonate no absolutely so beyond the fact that it's your vocation could you touch a little bit upon what art and what writing continues to do for you, your well-being and your soul. Yeah, definitely. I I don't know. I read to my son this morning. He has not just discovered because I've been like pushing it on him since his birth, but he's just started being able to read Calvin and Hobbes by himself. So I now have to cope with the fact that I will never be his favorite cartoonist. There's just, I, I can't even complain about it. Like it's obvious, but it's interesting being a 
a human person alive right now. And I think there's been this real seismic shift where people are reassessing things. And for me, being able to read a comic and just enjoy it is relatively new. Like in the last decade, when comics became my job, it was something I couldn't do as an enjoyable thing. I couldn't pick up a comic and read it and be like, great, fun, yeah, I like this. Every comic I was reading was like, okay, how are they using dialogue? Okay, I wanna be able to draw trees like that. It was not fun. I wouldn't say that I didn't appreciate comics. I appreciated them too much, maybe. But seeing my kid discover Calvin and Hobbes I'm like reading it on three different levels. I'm myself at age five reading them uh, and being like, okay, half of this is going over my head, but I'm just like letting it wash over me and I love it. And then I'm reading it as a young comic artist who's so intimidated by Bill Watterson that I'm like, I'm never going to be this good. How is he this good? This is so good. And now I feel as a parent, I can read it and I'm like, these poor parents of Calvin. <laughs> I have a new appreciation of just reading it and being able to identify with a totally different character set than when I was a kid. And I feel like it's opened a new door for me in terms of appreciating comics. I also read This Was Our Pact. And there's a beautiful book. God, I love it. It's such an incredibly beautiful book. I just read it this morning. I don't know how I didn't get around to it until today, but I went to the library yesterday to uh, like once a week I go to the library and I get I'm like, I'll get one thing for my son to read. And I come home with a giant stack. And it was one of the books that I brought home for him. And he was reading Calvin and Hobbes at the breakfast table this morning. And I was like, I'm just going to flip through this. I probably won't finish it. And I read the whole thing. John was like, you have to take our kid to school. And I was like, I, like four more pages. <laughs> I'm almost done. <laughs> and it's just so cool to get to a point in my career where I think there's so much self-doubt and anxiety and like so much attention to your own work earlier in your career that you get to a certain point and you can appreciate comics again. And I feel like the pandemic has coincided with that for me where I'm like, oh, my job is not the end of the world. We're experiencing it maybe, but I might as well enjoy what I do and the art that I'm part of and feel a kinship with these artists rather than feel competitive or intimidated. And I think that's magical. And I think it's something that comes from a lot of luck and a lot of hard work and a lot of circumstance in terms of appreciating the things inside the four walls of our house and learning from my kid and his like genuine appreciation for these things. That is such a beautiful introspective fly. And for those of us that, that make this our vocation, I connected with every single thing you said. And it's, we also live in a society that is constantly, we're always, always like being told to monetize our hobbies. So yeah, I, I, I'm so glad that you were able to, to join me, Lucy. And I, I miss hanging out with you and being on panel I know, I miss you too. Oh, man. Because uh, we have so much to talk about now that we have raised sons that are the exact same age. And I know. I wish we could just put them in a fighting cage together. <laughs> that would be really swell. We'll have to figure out, like, 
when we get back to live comic cons and, and should we be you know at the same thing together we'll have to we'll have to bring them and, and oh that'd be so great go. but I, I appreciate you i appreciate your work i'm so grateful that you took that road trip with hope larson all those years ago thank you lucy thank you so much yeah my pleasure thank you again thank you to lucy nicely for chatting and thank you for listening if you're interested in picking up some of Lucy's books and you like to order online, but you also like supporting a human with a dream, head to studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories for links to High Five Books, a wonderful indie and a sponsor of the show. Until next time, I'm Jared Krasowska. Please find me on all of the social medias at Studio JJK, with the, with the exception of MySpace. I, I cannot find my password to get into that account. Bye.